One of my summer jobs as a youngster from about the ages 12 to about age 15 was I had an opportunity to be a, a caddy at a country club called, on Grozeal Island. It was really uh, one of those uppity islands that was just outside of Detroit area. And I would ride my bike to go to the island. It was about a seven-mile ride. My mom and dad was like, if you're going to have a job, you got to get there. And they let me ride my bike. And uh, we'd always start, first tea time was 7 a.m. whenever you're caddying. And so I wanted to get there early. And many of the caddies wanted to get there early. We wanted to get there early because if you got there early, then you're telling the lead caddy, who was the one who matched you up with golfers, you're telling them I'm really interested in working. But also, by getting there early, you had a better chance of getting the better golfers. And you didn't want to have the bad golfers because the bad golfers made you work a lot more because when the ball's going left and right and everywhere, you just knew how much harder it was. And there was this one gentleman, he was about six foot eight, probably 350 pounds. He could hit the ball a mile and a half, but the ball, one day it goes right, one day it goes left, one day it goes straight, and, and you're forever looking for his ball because it just went AWOL. And most of us are like, I, I don't want to caddy for that guy. At the same time, there was a guy about 5'6", maybe about 150 pounds soaking wet. He could hit the ball just as far as that guy, but it was always straight as an arrow. And we were always like, we want to golf, we want to caddy for that guy. So there's almost like a fight and, a, and, and arguing. And, hey, I'm caddying for him. No, you had him yesterday. No, I, I get him this day. Trying to, trying to make sure we had that guy who was the really good golfer so that our job was a little bit easier. And beyond that, he was nice. He didn't cuss at us. He didn't yell at us. He didn't tell us we were idiots. He didn't, he didn't degrade any, any caddies, as sometimes happens on a golf course. He, he was just a kind guy. And when you finish, or, or at the nine hole, which is at the turn, you always got a hot dog and a hamburger and chips and a drink. He'd treat the caddies. And we're like, we want a caddy for that guy. He's just a great guy, and he was a good golfer. And he became a guy that many of us wanted to imitate our lives after. Mark Twain said, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. This guy, as a 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old young kid, was an example to many of us, not just because he was a great golfer. We wanted to golf like him. None of us could possibly do it. But beyond that, his lifestyle was an exemplary lifestyle that, that he just kind of drew, just had that personality, like, I want to be around this guy even at 12 to 15 years old. Perhaps the most annoying thing is our inability to mimic people who invite our respect in different areas of life. Like the admiration of a great golfer. It's hard to be, to be accomplished like that person. Or the person who is a great musician. Can I do what they do? Or the person who is a great moral person. These people tend to inspire us when we say, man, look at what they do. Or someone in your field. You see a doctor, or you see a, a nurse, or see someone in an education field. And they're having great success and they're doing a really good job with it. Many times we hold those people up and go, man, I, I, I inspire to be like them one day. But typically we fall short of whoever that is that we hold up. See, because unless that person can come inside of us and take over who we are, we're never going to be just like that person. We're not going to do exactly what they do. No, we're not going to do it as good as they do it. They will, they'll definitely accomplish more than what we would trying to be just like them unless they can come over and take over the inside of us. It's, it's like trying to live the Christian life by an external outward imitation of Jesus Christ. Say, I want to try to be like Jesus Christ. Well, if you just do that 
outwardly, I'm going to try to be like Jesus. It's impossible. Instead, the Christian life is made to be lived as a life of incarnation. It's made to be lived as a life of someone living inside of us. Last week, we dug in and saw how Paul held up Jesus Christ as that example, that a great example to exercise, and that great example of the submissive mind. Paul said, you want to see a submissive mind, someone who submits to God? Then you look at Jesus Christ. We read it, and I think we agree with it and go, man, Jesus does that so good. But then practicing it, that's a struggle, isn't it? Looking at the life of Christ, that, that becomes a struggle. Say, I want to do it like he did it. I want to have a prayer life like he had. I want to know the scripture like he had. I want to love people like he loved people. I want to serve people the way he served people. I want to have patience the way he had patience. I want to have grace the way he had grace. We look at all these attributes of Jesus and you're like, goodness gracious, how am I going to do that? And many times what we try to do is we try to do it in our own power, and our own strength, because no mortal man or woman could ever hope to achieve what Jesus Christ achieved. It seems presumptuous, I think, to even try. This idea of living the Christian life by incarnation, it means the person of Christ lives inside of us. The person of Christ gives us the power to live a life that God expects of us. In Galatians 2, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but... Christ lives in me. That's incarnation. He lives in me. So how do, I, how do I live out this life like Jesus? I let Him take over. I let Him guide. I let Him do the work. That's living a life of incarnation. In Philippians chapter 2 today, we continue looking at verses 12 through 18. Let's see what Paul says about this idea. Look at verse 12 with me for a moment. Therefore, my dear friends... So last week, remember we were talking about Paul holds up Jesus. Here's the example. Here's what Jesus did. And that therefore is, okay, now look forward to what the call is. What is the action? Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. God works in you, but not by imitation, by incarnation, Christ living in me. Galatians says that Christ lives in me. And if you're a follower of God, you're a Christian, you're a believer, then He lives in you too. Y'all with me? Okay, remember, let me just a quick reminder. This right here, y'all look like a bunch of cardboard cutouts. Head nods help me out a lot. Little amen helps me out, so I know that you're with me. Because it's hard, I can't see a smile. Christ lives in you. Yeah, you don't have to do this on your own. We don't have to try to do this and muster up the strength as we cultivate this idea of a submissive mind that Paul is guiding us to in, in chapter 2 by responding to these great provisions of God. He gives us these, these wonderful provisions that helps us to live this submissive mind by the power of Christ that lives in us and not by my strength. Let's look at some of these provisions. I think we have a purpose to achieve. You, you and I, both individually and collectively as a body, individually as, a, as an individual Christ follower, but also as a body or part of a community, part of a family of God, this text is written to the church as a whole, but it's also to individuals within a church. So as we read this text, we look at Paul's instructions, we see that this is something that we do together and how we live this out is not just an individual thing because our lives affect one another. Paul says to, to work out your salvation. It's one of the 
the sometimes mo- most uh, misinterpreted verses in Scripture, and people say, work out my salvation. Paul is not suggesting that we work for our salvation, but many times people read that and think, oh, I must do all this good stuff, accomplish all these great things, because i got to work for my salvation, but we totally read that wrong. Paul says, work out our salvation, because what Paul said, and we go back to Philippians 1.1 in the beginning, he, he calls them, he says, he states that they're saints already in chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, to the saints. What's a saint? A follower in Jesus Christ, a believer in Jesus Christ, someone who has received the, the blood, the the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you become a saint because of that. And so he's writing to the saints. He says, now as saints, those who are saved people, now you work out your salvation. So he's coming along. He's not saying you work for it. That term they trusted Christ was set apart. That term work, work out means work to full completion, such as working out a problem in mathematics. I was having a conversation with somebody coming in this morning. We were talking about doing at-home schooling and how it's so different. And, and I saw a post about mathematics on social media not long ago. And the person said, I know this is how they teach math today. And they had it, how they do the boxes and how they all separate it and whatever. they. I don't know, what, what's that called now, new math today? What, there's a name for that. You all know what I'm talking about? They're, they're teaching. What you say? Common core math. That's what it is. Yeah, common core math. So they're showing common core math and it's totally confusing to me. And the person's post was, this is how I showed them. You know, and it's like how I learned it back in the day. And many of you learned it back in the day. And it's just so different. But this is working out that math problem. It's working out the math problem of life. It's getting out of the mind all the valuable assets. Like for the miner who goes in and, and they work that land. They work that land trying to get all the assets. It's working a field so that they get the greatest harvest possible. We have friends who are, who are farmers up in Ohio. And, and they're sitting and talking to the dad who does all the farming. And he's explaining all that goes into, well, this year we plant this crop in this field. And the next year we rotate the field. And, and we used to do turning our fields. Now we do no-till fields. I'm like, what do you mean no-till? Well, it's better for the soil because of this and that. It's working the land so that you get all you can out of the crop because when that plant grows, you don't want to get 50% of it. You want to get 100% of it. That's the idea here. Paul says, work out your salvation. The purpose God wants to work in us to achieve that Christ-likeness, to, to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. And there are problems in life. But God helps us work them out. Our lives have have tremendous potential, kind of like a, kind of like a minefield or, or kind of like a, a, a cornfield. There's so much great potential, and He wants us to fulfill that potential. But many times we come to be a believer in Christ, and we find that I sit in a row, and I hear a sermon, and I sing a song, and I go home, and every now and then I volunteer. Or every now and then I go to a Bible study. And God has so much more for us kind of reminds me of the young lady who came home from college, and I think about this now with kids that are in college, comes home from college and says to mom and dad, mom and dad, we need to have a little talk here. I got to talk to you about something kind of serious, and I really hope you don't get upset, mom and dad, with me. And so they go in the living room, and they sit down to talk, and she says, mom and dad, you know, I've been in nursing school, and that's been the direction I've been in for, for several years of my life, as we were talking about that, my junior high years, my high school years, but now here's I come to my junior year of college, I don't want to go to, I don't want to continue nursing. And mom, I'm sorry, I know that's going to hurt your feelings because you're a nurse and I was following that family tradition. But as I've been praying and thinking and God has been working in me, God has something else planned for me and I want to change my degree and I'm going to move over in this direction. Now, many times we as parents would hear that kind of news after kind of a direction and sometimes we don't hear it so clearly or we don't receive it so well. And we're like, wait a minute, you can't be changing your plan. This has been your life plan forever. But that's God 
working in her and she working out her salvation to, to listen to the call of God as the purpose in, in her life. The young lady had, did a courageous thing. She had faced God's will and she decided to work out her salvation, to, to work it out. Like, God, where are you drawing me? God, where are you directing me? God, what's my purpose? What do you want me to do? One of the wonderful things about being a Christian is the knowledge that God has a plan for our lives and He'll help us work it out for His glory. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is a great passage. Again, Apostle Paul, we're God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works which He prepared in what? In advance for us to do. I mean, I think we really have to answer that question. Like, do I really believe God has a plan for my life? And, am I, and have I worked it out enough that I'm discovering that plan and I'm trying to walk in that plan? Or have I just went down to kind of the status quo of life and just kind of followed the form and the function that's before me or whatever mom and dad have planned or what I thought I should be? Or am I missing the boat? Or does God have a plan that I understand? It? See, our God is an infinite God. And He's a God of variety. Could you imagine if you looked out in your backyard and every single bird was the same color? Could you imagine if all of us, as we did a say, bring your pet to church day or something, and everybody brought their dog, and it's like, man, all of our dogs look exactly the same. They all behave the same. What a boring world that would be. Or, or as people, just, just to think about as people that, that, that we're all different, with different fingerprints and, and different hair color and different character, characteristics and, and different personalities and different abilities. No, no two flowers are the same. No, no two snowflakes are the same. Why should Christians be the same? Paul's like, you're not all the same you got to work out your salvation. All of us must be Christ on earth, but we also must be ourselves because God has made us that way. The phrase, work out your own salvation, probably has reference particularly to a special problem or situation or dealing with the church of Philippi, but the statement also applies to the individual Christian. We're not to be just cheap imitations of other people, especially what we think are, are great Christians. Scripture is saying you, you hold that person up, you hold this person up. We're, we're allowed to follow and look at people's lives, but we should see Christ in them. That's what Paul said. Paul said, for me to follow, or follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's like, you look at Christ in me. That's what I want you to see. I want you to see the Jesus in me, and that's what I want you to imitate. And basically, anything that's not of Jesus, throw it away. Paul's saying, you don't do what I do. You, you see Christ in me. Philippians 2 and, and verse 14 and 15, Paul contrasted that life of the believer with the lives of those who are in the world. As you continue reading the text, and unsaved people, they complain and they find fault, but Christians rejoice. Paul's like, listen, Christians, in your life, you rejoice. Society around us, it's twisted. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how distorted our society is? It's absolutely twisted. Crazy, but, but the Christians stand straight because they measure their lives against God's Word, which is the perfect standard. This world is dark. And I don't have to give you an illustration for that. You, you, you see it around you all the time right now, the darkness of the world. But Christians, as Paul's calling the church in Philippi, we shine the light of Christ. In, in a world that is dark, we're supposed to be shining Light. The world has nothing to offer, but Christians hold out the Word of God as life, the, the message of salvation, the faith in Jesus Christ as life. In other words, as we follow God to achieve this purpose in our lives, we become better witnesses in a world that desperately needs Jesus. 
Nick, I appreciate you are with me every week, man. Luke, you, you look at verse 15. It, it's important to see that this purpose is achieved in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Someone said to me the other day uh, in a discussion about Scripture and all that's going on in our society, they said, has the world really changed at all? It was really terrible way back then. It's true, isn't it? It's been terrible for a long time. It's been broken since sin entered this world. Maybe it's different because it's all around us with technology and we can hear about it at the drop of a hat. It's right before us. Paul did not admonish, admonish us to, to retreat from the world. He, he didn't tell us, hey, you pull away from that world because real life it has its challenges. Paul's admonishing the church in this crooked and perverse generation. You're still light in this situation. We're still light in the middle of a pandemic and how we handle this. Are we complaining and grumbling and making it miserable for us and those around us? Or we say, you know what? I'm going to walk through the best faith I can. We are still light in such political unrest where people are taking different sides of the, of the argument on, on everything. We are still to be light in that. The Pharisees were so isolated and insulated from reality that they devoted an artificial kind of self-righteousness that was totally unlike the righteousness that God wanted for them. The Pharisees were trying to, trying to force a religion of fear and a religion of bondage on the people. And they crucified Christ because He dared to oppose that kind of religion. They're like, this totally blows up our world, and so they've hung them on a cross. It's not by leaving the world, but by, by ministering to it that we see God's purpose fulfilled. Maybe you know we've been invited to go help out the Odyssey Sober Living Center. That's a great example of walking in a world that's just broken, just needing the light of Christ, and, and even walking and going, we don't know what to do other than share Jesus. And pray fervently for the light of Christ to shine in that place. But you know that your, your workplace is like that. It may look different, but it, it's broken. Your neighborhood, our neighborhoods, they're just like that. They're broken. And we're in the middle of a situation where God's calling us. Are you working out your salvation? Living out your salvation? That's purpose. See, we cultivate the submissive mind by fulfilling God's purpose in our lives. But God didn't leave us here on our own to accomplish it. He provides great power. And as I look across this room, I say, most of us are aware of the power that I want to talk about today. A couple of different aspects. But as we look at that, Paul lays this down, that God works in us before He can work through us. Hear what I said? He has to work in us before He's going to work through us. And He works in us as He works through us. The principle is seen at work throughout the Bible. People like Moses and David and the apostles and many others. I mean, God has a special purpose for each and every person to fulfill. And each person was a unique example that God used. For example, it took God 40 years, 40 years to bring Moses to the place where he could use him to lead the people of Israel. And some of us are like, I've been a Christian for like 10 years. I've been a Christian for 5 years. I've been a Christian for 15 years. And I'm just kind of wondering, God, what do you have for me? I, it took Moses 40 years of growth. Maybe your time or our time is, is still ahead of us as he works in us. As Moses then tended those sheep for 40 years, God was working in him so that one day he might work through him. God, see, God is more interested, I believe, in the workmen 
than he is in the work. God, God is much more interested in what's happening inside of us than what we are actually outdoing. And as, as, as we allow Him to work inside of us, then what we go out and do will change dramatically. And as we allow Him to work inside of us, then we function more powerfully in this world. See, too many Christians obey God only because of the outside pressures and not because of what's on the inside. Paul warned the Philippians that, that, that not, not His presence with them, but their desire to obey God and to please Him was the important thing. They could not build their lives on Paul because, because he may not be with them very long. And so Paul was continually pointing, you look at Christ, you see Christ, you see Jesus. And that's where we draw people towards. The power that works in us is that power of the Holy Spirit of God. Paul's like, you have that power inside of you. Are you cultivating that? Our English word energy comes from the word translated works that we see in Philippians 2.13. It is God's divine energy that works in us. How are you doing in that area today? When it comes to your walk with Christ, are you trying to do it on your own? Or are you saying, Lord, I'm going to keep pursuing you. I'm going to keep growing in you. I'm going to keep, keep my heart and mind open to you. But Lord, I want you to do the work. See, it's God's divine energy. The same Holy Spirit. This is remarkable to me. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Christ when he was ministering on earth empowers us today. I mean, if you just stop and just think on that for a while, wait, the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to go to the cross is that same Holy Spirit that gives me power to live each and every... I have, the, I have the privilege to do that. However, however, we must be aware and recognize the fact that the energy of the flesh and the devil are also at work. And so we have this struggle that goes on. And we must, we absolutely must recognize the struggle while we lean into and do our best to allow the power of the Holy Spirit to work inside of us. Because of His death, His resurrection, His ascension of Christ, God's divine energy is available to us to work out. So how does He do that? I think there's three main tools. Three main tools. One, the Word of God. I think right now is a great time to stop and evaluate what's been my life with the Word of God as of late. And I'm just wondering sometimes if we're missing the boat, so to speak. Thessalonians says, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as, hum as a human word, but as it actually is. The word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. See, the same word of God that spoke the universe into being can release divine power into our lives. How's your diet with the word of God been lately? Has it been a steady part of your life? See, we have a responsibility, I think, to appreciate the Word and not treat it as we would, would of other words of men. The Word of God is just not some other novel that you pick up and you read off of your shelf. The Word of God is unique. It's inspired. It's authoritative. It's infallible. It won't fall apart. If we do not appreciate the Word of God, then we're going to struggle to have His energy working inside of us. When it's pandemic first began, I did a whole couple lessons about the power of the Word of God to change your life. And there's tons of studies and stats out there that have looked at that that have basically said, if you're not in the Word of God, you're going to continue to struggle with whatever challenge of life you're walking in. And so the Word of God must be a, a, a steady diet in our life. We must appropriate the Word. That word appropriate means we must receive it 
This means much more than listening to it. It means much more than reading it. It means much more than studying. To receive God's Word means that we welcome it into our lives, into our inner being. We welcome God's Word and say, God, you are authority. God, your Word is infallible. God, I welcome into my life because I want your Word to direct me. Do we really do that? God's truth is to the spiritual person what food is to the physical man. Do we live that way? Do we start our day going, I need the Word of God? Do we stop in the middle of the day, I need the Word of God? Do we end our day going, I need, I need some Word of God? Are we really feasting on a diet so we appreciate, we appropriate, and then we apply the Word of God? So we don't just read it, we, we look at God's Word and then we act upon it. What does James 1.22 say? Do not merely what? Listen to the Word of God, but be doers of the Word of God. That means I apply it. That means when I read it and I study it and I hear it, I don't just go, man, that, that's a good study. I just go home. We go, Lord, how can I implement this in my life? That's where power comes from. We trust the Word of God. The angels promised to Mary in Luke 1.37 says, For with God nothing is impossible. That grows in us. That belief that nothing is impossible grows in us as we live in the Word of God. It actually means no Word of God shall be void of power is what that means. God, God's Word has the power to accomplishment in it. Faith that releases the power. And so we see this truth operating in the life of Christ. He commanded the crippled man. Commanded the crippled man. Stretch out your hand. And he commanded him. He gave him power. Then obeyed him and healed him. He commanded Peter. You get out and walk on water. The Word of God. And He commanded He enabled them to do it. Because what? Because of faith. People who obeyed the Word of Jesus. It's the faith in God's promises that releases God's power. The Holy Spirit wrote down the promises for us in a world, or in the Word, and He gives us the faith then to take hold of these promises. How are we doing this area? See, that's what Paul's pointing people to. He's pointing us towards the power. But he uses also not just power, uh, uh, not just the Word of God for power, but he also uses prayer. Definitely uses prayer. There's one reason why I felt this call to start calling us as a church to, to prayer. And we're going to start with a 12-hour fast and pray because that's where our power comes from. Ephesians 3, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that works within us, the Holy Spirit is closely related to our prayer lives. To, to the Word of God working in us, the, the power of prayer working in us, and the book of Acts makes it clear that prayer is divinely ordained spiritual source of power. You read through the book of Acts, and I would venture to say every action of power was covered in prayer first. I, I would have a hard time probably finding something that happens in the book of Acts that was not first prayed for before it happened, because they go together. Prayer and power. The elders in the book of Acts, they gave attention to what? To the Word of God and to prayer. There's a reason why. Because that's where the power comes from. Unless we are people of prayer, God cannot work through us. And I think that the church in America needs to draw together in prayer like we've never drawn together before. In the Bible and the church today, people need to draw together in prayer. I wonder... I wonder, in this pandemic, has God got our attention yet? Has God got my attention yet? Do we continue in the pandemic, continue to struggle because we're too focused on, what about mask? What about school? What about work? What about this? What about that? What about the politics? What about this? Versus God going, would you just draw to me? 
Would you get with me in the Word? Would you get with me in prayer? Would you try to set aside all this other stuff? Yeah, it's swarming around us and swirling around us and it's overwhelming our minds, but I wonder if we're missing the opportunity. I'm wondering if we are. There's a third thing that helps us, a third tool, and it's suffering. The Spirit of God works in a special way in the lives of those who suffer for the glory of Christ. A fiery trial has a way of empowering believers to serve Christ. We're in a trial. Paul has experienced God's power in a Philippian jail when he was beaten and he was thrown into prison. He sang and he praised God in spite of his suffering. He still praised God. The Word of God, prayer and suffering, they're three tools that God uses in our lives, like tools in a toolbox. If you pulled out your toolbox right now and you'd see a hammer in there and a screwdriver in there and who knows whatever kind of tools, what about if you pull out your spiritual toolbox? Is it filled up? Say, yeah, man, look at that. Look at the pages of the Word of God that are filled in my life because they're in my toolbox. Boy, I can just see opportunities where I've been on my knees in prayer and I can see where I'm going to gather with others in prayer. Oh, man, I opened that toolbox. I see some of that suffering going on, but I'm still rejoicing in the middle of it. Or would you open your toolbox and go, man, that's pretty stinking empty. We've got to draw to these tools. The Word of God and prayer. It's just as electricity must run through a conductor so the Holy Spirit must work through the means that God has provided. And God has provided three great tools. Scripture. He's given us His Scripture. He's given us prayer. And He's given us suffering. See, if we are to have the submissive mind and the joy that goes with it, we must recognize that there is a purpose to achieve. That's God's plan for our life. We must realize there's a power to receive. That's a, the Holy Spirit. That's a lasting power. And when there's a promise to believe. Here is the promise I want you to believe. Joy comes in submission. Joy comes in submission. That's the promise. The world's philosophy is that joy comes from aggression or getting what I want or buying more stuff. World says you fight for your rights. You get what you want. You step on the other person. The example of Jesus is proof enough that the world's philosophy is wrong. He never used a sword or any other kind of weapon. He won the greatest battle in history, the battle against sin, the battle against death, the battle against hell. He defeated hatred by what? By manifesting love. These people are going to put me on a cross. He still said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He overcame lies with truth because he what? Because he surrendered, you and I get to be victorious. That's mind-boggling. We must believe the promise. Luke 14, 11 says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in the Spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the life of Jesus. That's the life that Paul's calling us to. That's the life that he's submitting us to. There's a twofold joy that comes to the person who possesses and practices the submissive mind. And we see it in verse 16. Paul says there's a joy when Christ returns... And in verse 17 and 18, he's pointing to us that there is a joy in the here and now. So even though we live in this world that is broken and it's difficult and it's struggling, he's like, there's joy here now, there's joy in the future. In the day of Christ, God is going to reward those who have been faithful to him. The joy of the Lord is going to be part of that reward. The faithful Christian will discover that in his sufferings on earth be transformed in the glory of what? The glory of heaven. He's like, you're going to suffer. It's only for a little while, though. It's just for a time being. He'll see that his 
work. A Christian will see their works not in vain. Working out your salvation, not in vain. It was the same kind of promise of the future joy that helped our Savior who suffered on the cross. We look forward to that. We do not have to wait for the return of Christ, though, to start experiencing joy by having a submissive mind. That joy is a present reality. It's a present reality that, that it comes through sacrifice. It comes through service. It's remarkable that in two verses that discuss sacrifice, Paul used the words joy and rejoice. You mean when I have to sacrifice and I go through suffering? He also says, yep, have joy and you will rejoice. Most people would associate sorrow with suffering. But Paul says, man, listen, that's the doorway to joy. In other words, when you're going through the stuff, when you're going through the difficulties, be looking because joy is right around the corner. Philippians 2.17, Paul was comparing his experience of sacrifice to that of the rest of the pouring out of a drink offering of the book of Numbers. It was possible that Paul's trial would go against him as he was under. It was possible that he would either end up in prison for the rest of his life or he'd even be executed. But it didn't rob Paul of his joy. Paul still sees that as an opportunity. His death would be a sacrifice. It'd be a priestly ministry. Why? Because as I live in Christ, as I live for Christ, I'm going to be uh, joyful here on earth. I'm going to live for Christ. People will see Christ. But what? If I get to heaven, that'll be joy too. So Paul looked at it and said, either way, I win. Sacrifice and service. They're the marks of submissive mind. And the submissive mind experiences joy even in the midst of suffering. It takes faith to exercise a submissive mind to God's plan and God's will and God's purpose. A lot of faith. We must believe that God's promises are true. We must believe that they're going to work out in our lives just as they did in Paul's life. God works in us through His Word. God works in us through prayer. God works in us through suffering. We've got to see these things as tools, and then God fulfills His purpose in us as we receive and believe His Word. And life is not a series of disappointing ups and downs. It's actually a, a sequence of delightful ins and outs. God working in us, and He's working things out of us. God works in us, we work it out. The example comes from Christ. The energy comes from Christ. And Paul says, listen, the result, it's joy. 